Apparently, studies say that the average person speaks 16,000 words a day. 16,000 words a day. Now, do you think you're above or below average? (laughs) Some people are well above average and some people are well below. There's a massive range, but uh, how do you think you compare? 16,000 words a day. Lockdown, I suppose, might have brought the average down. But anyway, we say a lot of words. And that means a lot of potential for good and for harm and sin. Our words can do a lot of harm and they can do a lot of good. And we have a lot of them. And our words are the subject of the ninth commandment. For those who don't know, we're in a series going through the Ten Commandments. And we've nearly finished. We've got to the ninth commandment. And the ninth commandment says, you shall not give false witness against your neighbour. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. Now, we're going to deal with this a little differently from the other commandments we've been going through because it's coincided with, on the Thursday just gone, we looked at it in home group. And I know not everyone was there in home group, but I'm going to sort of act as if you were. Uh, But I'll give you a little summary, because in home group last Thursday, we saw this commandment tells us about three major areas. Promoting justice, false witness talks about the law court, God cares about justice. Protecting reputations, false witness isn't just in a law court. It can happen in conversation after church. It can happen in social media. Protecting reputations. And then the obvious one, being honest. God is the God of truth and he cares about honesty. This commandment is about justice, reputation, protect other people's reputation and speak honestly. The commandment warns us against words that are dishonest or words that damage even though they might not be dishonest. Gossip, unclean talk, harsh criticism. So there's, well, a tiny summary of some of the things we saw in home group last Thursday. And tonight is not going to be about telling us what we should say or what we should not say. We were looking at that in home group. And to be honest, so often we know, so often before those words come out of our mouth, we know whether we should or should not say them. But we need help, help to actually do it. We know that word should be restrained, but we need help to restrain it. We know it would be good to say that word, although actually it might be unpopular. We need help to say it. So my subject tonight is very simple, helps to control our words. I want to give us all helps to control our words. If you need to know what you should or should not say, sorry, that was home group on Thursday. But I reckon most of the time we know. But tonight is helps. What does the Bible tell us to help us speak the right way? Now, I've got nine helps for us, but don't worry. (laughs) It's going to be five tonight and God willing, four next week. And tonight I want to get them all from James. So would you turn to James? It's towards the end of your Bible, just after Hebrews. It goes Hebrews, James 1 and 2, Peter and 1, 2 and 3, John and so on. James, you turn to, might as well turn to the start of James. Now, I said I've got five helps to control our words from from James. The first one is the foundation. 
So we're going to take longest over that, and then the other four will be more briefly. So here we go. Five helps to control your words. The first one, new life in Christ. And straight away, hopefully you can see that's the foundation. It's more than just a help. Now, there is a bit of a puzzle in James. I wonder if you noticed it. And it was in the parts that Paul read to us. And the puzzle is two things it says that look like they don't go together. The first one is chapter 1, verse 26. 1, verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Do you get the picture? It's like riding a horse. And if you let the reins hang loose, the horse can put his head where he likes and he's in control. If you keep the reins tight, well, the horse has got that bit in his mouth and he can't just throw his head where he likes and you're in control. In other words, it's saying in verse 26, keep control of your tongue. In other words, it's saying keep control of what you say. However religious you may be, whatever claims you might make about your relationship with Jesus, God's word here says if you don't keep control of what you say, if your words have a tendency to get out of control and you just unleash anger and hurt with your words, you are deceiving yourself and your religion is worthless. The word is empty. Whatever you might claim, it's empty. It's hollow. God's word puts it bluntly. We must need to hear it bluntly. It must be right from the days of James onwards, and well, actually, before him even, there have been many people who've claimed to be God's people, but there's been something hollow, and their failure to control their tongue shows up. There's something wrong here. Now, that James says that is not the puzzle. It is a warning that we need. The puzzle is... How can he say that and then say chapter 3, verse 7 and 8? Did you notice chapter 3, verse 7 and 8? All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Wow. Now, how, how does James do this? He says in chapter 1, your religion is worthless if you don't control your tongue. And then he says in chapter three, no one can control their tongue. How can he say, does that mean everyone is that hollow person with a worthless religion? How can he say that? He says you can be a dog trader, or you could even be a lion tamer, but you can't be a tongue tamer. Well, there we are. That's all of us wiped out, is it? What's going on? Is it there's a difference between chapter one, keeping a tight rein on the tongue and chapter three, actually taming it? So you can't tame it, but you can rein it in. Now, that's not the answer. The answer lies in this. The word at the end of verse seven and almost at the beginning of verse eight. Significant word at the end of verse seven and almost at the beginning of verse eight. Do you notice it? All kinds of creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. The word is not a word for man distinguished from woman. It's a word for human nature distinguished from what comes from God. 
It's not man as in contradiction to woman. It's man as us human beings with our merely human nature in distinction from what comes from God. It isn't saying the tongue is untamable. It's saying there is nothing in the human nature that can manage to tame the tongue. Now, straight away, do you see the answer to the puzzle? The answer to the puzzle is we need something beyond human nature to tame the tongue. We need a power from outside of ourselves if our words are going to be controlled. And you may be straight away realising what that power is. Well, do you remember what heading I gave to this help? New life in Christ. It's interesting this comes straight after verse 6. And verse 6 ends by saying, oh, James is such a blunt person. The tongue is a restless evil. Um, no, I've gone to the wrong place. Verse 6, it is itself set on fire by hell. The tongue's set on, it's as if it's got its power from hell and it's on fire and it's spreading its wildfire. Well, remember the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, instead of a fire ascending from hell, there was a fire descended from heaven, representing the Holy Spirit being poured out. And that fire, in other words, the Holy Spirit, kindled new powers and gave new, what? Speech. To the human tongue. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit renewed human speech so people used their tongues to do what? To point others to the Lord Jesus and tell his good news. The human tongue put to good use. Well, there's the key to the puzzle. How can James say, your religion is really empty if you don't control your tongue, and then say, There's nothing in human nature that can control it. The answer is we need a new nature, new life from Christ. We need a new power, the power of the Holy Spirit that comes when we have this new life in Christ. Now, this is the same thing that we saw last Sunday about stealing. If you were here last Sunday, do you remember? Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. We looked at what does the New Testament say? And it talks about us having new life and putting it into practice. Let's go back there. It was Ephesians 4. Let me just remind you and show you the parallel. Ephesians 4. I remind you the pattern. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24 I'm just going to skim over it briefly because we heard it last time. I'll just remind you. It said, at conversion, if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus, and that's the big if to ask yourself, have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus? You turn to him and receive new life. And the old self went and a new person came in his place. It's what the Lord Jesus called being born again. Not something that happens naturally to any of us. It happens when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit works in us and gives us new life. And that new life leads to new living. We saw last week, verse 25 onwards, it says, therefore, and it gives us a whole list of different things to put off and put on. Because you put off the old person and put on the new person, made new in Christ, it says put off. That's sin. Put on this new way of living. 
including in what you say. Notice verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Put off the falsehood, put on true speaking. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Put off unclean talk. The word is for like rotten fruit that spreads its rottenness. And put on talk, that is, the word is for, it's, it, it gives grace to the hearer. It's amazing. It's a, your words can be an undeserved gift from God to the person who hears. Put that on. Amazing. But it all flows out of verses 17 to 24. You cannot do it unless first Jesus Christ has given you new life. Have you turned to him and trusted him for that new life? It gives you power to control your words. Now, let's think about another sort of new life. Snakes. Another sort of new life. Snakes give life to their young, they lay eggs. And then what do they do? They clear off and leave the eggs before they've even hatched. The mother snake does not stay. She leaves the eggs just to hatch and the babies just to fend for themselves. But apparently it's no problem. Apparently baby snakes are quite fine with fending for themselves. God is not like a mother snake and we are not like baby snakes. We need ongoing help and power from our Heavenly Father and he gives it. And so Ephesians 4, new life and new living, leads into Ephesians 5, verse 18. If you've got a Bible, could you have a look at that? Because it's uh, it's very relevant. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, and we could say leads to a lot of inappropriate words. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I don't often comment on Greek grammar because you don't often need to know it, but it's very interesting here because the word for be filled is a command, we must do it, but it's what's called passive. It is we must let the Holy Spirit fill us and it's a word for on an ongoing way. You must keep on letting the Holy Spirit fill you and that then, verse 19, will affect how you speak. As well as the Spirit giving new birth and new life, which John 3 tells us he does, we, can, we need to keep on having power from him. We're not like snakes, given life and just get on with it. We need daily power from the Holy Spirit. So do you keep on asking, Father, give me the Holy Spirit today so I will speak words that are a gift from you and bridle my tongue. Do you keep on letting the Holy Spirit fill you? Do you keep aware that I depend on him to fill me today? It isn't just I got my tank filled at conversion and I just can keep going through the rest of life. I need to be refilled. Keep aware, keep dependent, keep asking. And this power means you can and should keep control of your tongue. Let's go back to James 1 and notice something simple but easily missed. James 1, verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, who's to keep the tight rein on the tongue? Us. 
We are told to do it. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. It's a little like this. Do you know that list in Galatians of the fruit of the Spirit? What's the last one in the list? Self-control. That is interesting. It doesn't say spirit control. You ever thought about that? It says self-control. It doesn't say spirit control. Yes, we need the spirit to give us it, but we are then to exercise it, including in what we say. Okay, that was quite a long point. The rest are going to be shorter. So let me summarize that point before we move on to the next. This help to control our words is more than a help. It's a necessity. And it's this new life in Christ. Continued power from the Holy Spirit. That means we can and should bridle, keep a tight rein on our tongue. Okay, let's now move on to four more helps that uh, will be more brief. Four more helps to control your tongue. The next one is recognize the power of words. Recognize the power of words. Let's read James 3 verses 3 to 6. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And if you think that James is exaggerating, well, you must have not heard too many people. Now, do you remember in the news last year, Australian wildfires? They always have them, but they had a particularly bad year last year. Over 46 million acres destroyed by fire in Australia. Wow. It is verse 5, isn't it? A great fire is set, a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. A little spark can get a hold and then spread and leave devastation. A little word can get a hold of someone's mind, can get a hold of someone's reputation, can get a hold of someone's thoughts about God and spread and leave behind devastation. James 3 verses 3 to 6 is all about words are powerful. He has various illustrations. Let's take an illustration he doesn't have, but I like it. You go to the top of Beacon Hill, and for some bizarre reason, you tear open a feather pillow, and out all the feathers go, and then you regret it, and, ah, oh, let's get them in. Have you got any chance of getting those feathers back in? You know how windy it is on Beacon Hill. And people can say words and regret them, but it's too late. You can't get them back in. They're spreading. The damage is done. Words can be powerful. Martin Luther King spoke words and they were powerful to show up in justice and to give people hope and encourage people to take action. Adolf Hitler spoke words and they were powerful to stir up hatred and to provoke violence. Powerful both ways. It's not just the big speech writers. It, it, it can also be on the small personal level. 
When I was a student in my final year, my dad died. And I went to the church I went to as a student that Sunday. There was a man there, the word of Christ dwelt in him richly. And he just had a simple sentence that he said to me. And it was so helpful. And I've remembered it for the 25 years ever since. Not, not some cliche, but just a simple sentence. And it stuck with me. A few words can be powerful. Negatively, they can. Oh, there's so many people carrying around with them hurts because of someone's words to them or about them. And the person who said them has probably forgotten them long ago, but the person hurt is still carrying them around. So a help to control our words is remember they're powerful and bridle that tongue. Here's the third help. Respect those you are talking about. This is chapter 3, verse 9 to 12. Respect those you are talking about. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. When I was in Zambia, I remember having this long, hot day out visiting farms. And it was a tiring day. We got a puncture in the middle of nowhere, and that was hard work. And we'd been out since about 5 or 6 a.m. And when it got to 6 p.m. and the sun was just going down, we were going home and we passed a borehole. And I remember pumping the pump and sticking my head under the water spout. It was lovely, just mouthfuls of fresh water. And then if you went back a few days later and stuck your mouth under that spout and got mouthfuls of salt water, well, something's odd, isn't it? That sort of thing doesn't happen. Lovely fresh water and then salt water later. doesn't work like that. But that's us if, verse 9 says, we praise God in church and then we're cutting down our fellow person, criticising. Because the people we speak against, the people we gossip about, the people we harshly criticise are the image of God. And that's why James says this is totally contradictory. However irritating, however awkward, however plain wrong they are, they're the image of God. I, I think... This is a, I think, rather than I'm definite, but I think the breaking of the ninth commandment I've been most aware of at Hollywell has been being too ready and too quick and too easy to criticise, to find fault, to jump to conclusions about people's heart or people's attitudes. James says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Let's replace that being quick to criticise with Philippians 2. What does Philippians 2 say to us? It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That doesn't mean the concert pianist has to go around saying that that everyone else is a better pianist than her. No, 
But wouldn't it be good if our first reaction was, they may have a good reason for that. They may have a good reason why they did or said that, instead of our first reaction being incompetent. I got that wrong. A thoughtless person. What's your first reaction? Let's replace that quickness to criticise with Matthew 7. You know this one, don't you? What does Jesus say in Matthew 7 about our quickness to criticise? He says, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Did you notice that? Not to comment to other people about the speck, but to help them with it. Let's move, I've been talking there about the church. Let's move from the church into the workplace. Now, every workplace I've been in, there has been a tendency to criticise the boss. There has been a tendency to know better than the person over you how he or she should do their job. Isn't that true? Well, it's been in every workplace I've been in. I don't know if Seth does it about me here. But anyway, it's been there in every workplace I've been in. There is a lot of talk criticising others about how they do their job. Gossip and harsh criticism are often an act of defiance against authority. And James here says, respect the people you talk about because they're the image of God. But we could layer on top of that, the Bible also has a high view of authority and respecting those above us. That should bridle our tongue, particularly in the workplace. Here's, what are we up to? Fourth one, the fourth help to control our tongue. Be clear what your responsibility is. This is James 4, verse 11 and 12. Be clear what your responsibility is. James 4, verse 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Now, here's something that happens in families a lot. A sister telling her brother at dinner time to eat quieter and quicker. A sister telling her brother, tidy your room, or that he hasn't done his Saturday morning jobs properly. I think that's a pretty common experience. But it's not her job to do that. The clue is in the name, brother. He is her brother. She's acting as if, actually, she is his parent. Verse 11 and 12 is saying, when your words judge a fellow Christian, you're acting as if that's not your brother. You're acting like you're a parent. Or to put it another way, you're acting as if you're the lawgiver. Instead of someone who alongside your brother is under God's law. Now, sometimes you do have authority and responsibility to correct others. Yes, sometimes we do. For example, if you're a parent, uh, if you're a manager at work, if you are leading a church activity, there may be times when you have to correct someone and it may be necessary. But before you speak, think this. Is this 
an area where I have authority and responsibility to say this. And if not, keep quiet. Leave things to the judge. That's what verse 12 is saying. Leave things to the judge. And as you leave things to the judge, or as you ponder whether to say that or not, remember you also will be judged by him. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Speak and act. Notice that. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? (laughs) Do you think of God's law as giving freedom? Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over justice, over judgment. Speak and act mercifully towards others because we're brothers and sisters together, not the judge. And would you want to be measured and judged by the way you've measured and judged them in your words? Do you want God to be quick to accuse the way you've been quick to accuse? That should bridle our tongues. Be clear what your responsibility is. Last one, and it's a very brief and simple one. Here it is. Spend more time listening. Chapter 1, verse 19. Spend more time listening. 1, verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I really need this verse. Do you? Yeah, it's so simple. It's so clear that I, I, I've known it for a long time, but I still keep on needing it. There's hardly anything I need to say about this verse, actually, I think, because I'd just be muddying the waters that we know what it means. We just need to get on and do it. Maybe this is what I should say. Look what comes just a couple of verses later. Verse 22. Verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. (laughs) We'd be saved such a lot of unhelpful words, rash words, misjudged words, angry words, if we just did verse 19 and did a lot more listening and were a lot slower to speak. I wonder, who are the people you take your difficulties to? Who are the people who you find are helpful to listen to when there's some sort of issue? So often, it's the people who are good listeners. So it doesn't take some sort of PhD or course in being a good talker. Great cleverness. No, it takes a person who's good at listening. One of the best helps to good speaking is good listening. So... I'm not going to say anything more about verse 19. It's simple. It's just something we need to work at doing. Maybe put this verse on your mirror. If you look in a mirror at the beginning of the morning or somewhere that you look at the start of each day and just be reminded, today I've got to work at being slower to speak and being quicker to listen. Well, there we go. There are my five helps from James to help us control our tongues. I reckon so often we know what we should say. And what we should not say, our problem isn't knowing, it's doing. 
So there are five helps to control your words. Just something different very briefly before we finish. If this has shown up sin in your words. If this has shown up that you've got things wrong with your words in the past. What help does the Bible give? Well, of course, you know, this, this, this can be like weeks more of sermons. But I'll just point out to you, if you were here this morning, did you notice what passage we started the whole service with? Isaiah 6. And how is that relevant? Isaiah, he saw something of God's holiness and what was his reaction? I am a man of unclean lips. What was God's reaction? To send an angel who took a fiery coal from the altar and, oh, this is nasty, put it on Isaiah's lips. This is all obviously picture language and said, you're Guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Fire from the altar, what's that all about? Well, of course, it's sacrifice and it's all a pointer to Jesus. The sacrifice who can take away your guilt and cleanse your sin, including of any uncleanness in our lips, in our words. So don't just try to do the things that you've heard this evening. Do do them. But first of all, be like Isaiah. Tell God your sin. Ask him for cleansing. And then like Isaiah, you can say, here I am. Send me and use even my words in your service.